You're listening to Sermon Audio from Jerusalem Church, an independent Reformed church in Mannheim, Pennsylvania. Our expository preaching ministry is devoted to proclaiming the law and the gospel for the glory of God and the salvation, growth, and comfort of Christ's church. If you'd like to know more about our church, visit us online at JerusalemChurch.net. Here's a message that we hope strengthens your faith and comforts your soul. Dave Simmons, the author of Dad, the Family Coach, told a gripping story of a lesson that he learned from his little daughter. He took his eight-year-old daughter, Helen, and his five-year-old son, Brandon, to the mall, and as they approached the mall, they saw petting zoo on the side of of an 18-wheeler that was parked there, and both kids excitedly said, Daddy, Daddy, can we go? Please, please, can we go? And he approved and flipped them both uh, a quarter before entering Sears, which I think probably dates the illustration a bit, a quarter getting you into a petting zoo. Now it's like $40. And uh, is Sears even around? I, I think they went belly up. So there you have it. Dated, dated example, but he flipped them this and he, he, uh, uh, they bolted for the animals and then he bolted to look for a scroll saw. And a few minutes passed and he turned to see his daughter Helen uh, following behind him and noticing that something was up, he bent down and he asked her what was wrong. And she looked up at her father with big brown eyes and said sadly, well, daddy, it costs 50 cents. So I gave Brandon my quarter. And then she repeated to him their family motto taught to her by her parents, love is action. And Dave said that no one loves cuddly, furry creatures more than Helen. And this precious little girl gave up what was valuable to her so that her younger brother could experience the petting zoo at her expense. She, she had learned that true love is action and that's what she lived. Well, do you know what Dave did? He took his daughter to the petting zoo and they stood by the fence and they watched Brandon enjoy petting and feeding the animals. Helen didn't go in. And Dave said that he had the 50 cents burning a hole in his pocket, but they stood there watching from afar and his, his daughter's hands and chin resting on the face as she watched. And he never offered her the additional 50 cents. And she never asked for it. And this is what Dave wrote next. Because she knew the whole family motto. It's not love is action. It's love is sacrificial action. Love always pays a price. Love always costs something. Love is expensive. When you love, benefits accrue to another's account. Love is for you, not for me. Love gives, it doesn't grab. Helen gave her quarter to Brandon and wanted to follow through with her lesson. She knew she had to taste the sacrifice. She wanted to experience that total family motto, love is sacrificial action. John wrote just one simple little phrase, a motto perhaps, that in part summarizes all of the law and the prophets, a concise summary of the Christian life and our main point this morning, just two simple words, agapomen alleluus, or love one another. Two words in Greek, three in English. Love one another. It's simple. Love one another. Verse 11 
For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should, what does it say? Love one another. It's not easy, but it's crystal clear. Jesus desires and commands his beloved people to love each other. The church is a family, siblings adopted by God and siblings called to love each other by the Spirit of God. Love was the message taught to them from the very start. Jesus taught this, John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. John 15, 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. The Christian life is defined by love for the body of Christ. Love is, at least in part, what it means to follow Jesus Christ. John illustrates this powerfully to make certain we know what love isn't. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. John refers to this violent tale of two brothers, both sons of Adam and Eve, Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer and Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit appropriate for a farmer. Abel brought a, the, a firstborn of his flock and the fat portions an offering appropriate for a shepherd. The plot thickens when the Bible tells us the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard Cain became furious. The question is, why was Abel's sacrifice accepted and why was Cain's rejected? Genesis 4, 6 through 7. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain offered his sacrifice in such a way that it was objectionable to God. And then we read Hebrews 11:4 in the New Testament, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So if you put the pieces together, Cain's sacrifice was not accepted by God because he lacked faith. Cain's heart was faithless. Therefore, his actions, this sacrifice that he offered up, were, were in contempt of righteousness. He didn't love by faith. And therein lies the conflict. Cain saw something in his brother Abel that angered him. And what did he see? A right and loving heart. So driven by furious envy, Cain killed his brother. He was hateful because he was of the evil one, as John puts it. Abel was righteous because he was an adopted child of God and justified through faith in God's gracious promises. Cain and Abel were brothers by flesh, but they were from two different spiritual families. Matthew Henry, the famous Puritan commentator, wrote, quote, ill will will teach us to hate and revenge what we should admire and imitate, end quote. Ill will will teach us to hate and revenge what we should 
admire and imitate. Jesus is the perfect Abel. His innocent blood was shed because of his righteousness. As the blood of Abel cries out for justice and vengeance, the blood of Jesus, it speaks a better word of forgiveness and of atonement. Are you aware of the beautiful life of love Jesus has called you to live because you belong to him? Are you living out just basic Christianity by loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? A simple question. And here's what I think we're tempted to do with this question. I think we're, we're tempted to answer, yes, of, cor- of course I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not even a question. A- absolutely I do. And what we mean by yes Uh, What we mean by that is, yes, of course I don't hate or murder them. Yes, of course I am nice to them. Yes, of course I am civil with my brothers and sisters in Christ. When we hear love one another, we're tempted to define love as civility. I'm loving as long as I'm not strangling you in, in a back alley somewhere. So love becomes reduced to tolerance or civility or courtesy as long as I'm nice, I'm loving. But love is not charitable tolerance. Love is sacrificial action. Jesus did not redeem us by his charitable tolerance. He redeemed us by his sacrificial action, his sacrificial love. He gave something in order to love. Here's my point. If we're primarily concerned about whether we have avoided hatred and murder, we become less concerned with whether we're actually loving according to the Ten Commandments and the example of our Lord. If we, if we make our mission to love one another, we will by default avoid hatred and murder, but we'll go further into a robust and deep sense of love. You have the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters. Are you following his lead into love? We haven't really defined love yet, but we're getting there. But if by a quick evaluation, just running through some things maybe in your mind, if you are truly loving Christ's church, you must expect two things. When you love one another, expect, number one, to be rejected by the world. And number two, to be sure of your salvation. Two little tests, verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Now, why does the world hate Christians? Why would that be the case? Because they're significantly different. They hated Christ. They they have been chosen by God on the grounds of his pleasure and will and not upon any intrinsic worth or goodness inside of them. Believers have been bought with the precious blood of Christ, given to Christ out from the world and kept from the evil one and kept from sin by God in order to live blameless lives and holy lives in Christ. Believers are not the world. There is a distinction between the world and believers and believers are not the world. The individuals composing the true and invisible church of Christ don't think like the world, don't act like the world and they're noticeably, they noticeably love differently than the world. Cain hated Abel because Abel was justified by faith. 
The Jews hated Jesus because Jesus perfectly loved God and others. And Christians are hated because they live lives of love powered by the gospel. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 19, if you were of the world, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Living for Christ, it will not bring you popularity or applause from the world. It will bring you hate and rejection. Years ago, I watched this movie, Collision, and it was a debate. It was a very, very well done movie, uh, kind of an ongoing debate between staunch atheist Christopher Hitchens and Pastor Doug Wilson. And Hitchens, at one point in the film, says this, quote, I think the teachings of Christianity are immoral. The central one is the most immoral of them all. That is the one of vicarious redemption. You can throw your sins onto somebody else, end quote. That's precious to us. And the world hates that message. Uh, from his book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins, he writes this, quote, <clears throat> The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. End quote. That's what the world thinks of God. Be sure of this, living with allegiance to Jesus Christ is not winning you brownie points with the world. Though rejection and hatred from the world sound unpleasant, we must hear the words of Jesus again, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Loving one another brings rejection from the world. And it brings something else. Something that's very, very precious. Something that we want badly. And that's the assurance of salvation. Verses 14 and 15. We know. We know. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, verses 14 and 15 build upon verse 12 and test the authenticity of our salvation. Verse 15 is a syllogism. Now, here's a syllogism that you uh, may have heard before. All men are mortal... Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. Here's John's syllogism. All haters are murderers, no murderer has eternal life, so what's implied? Therefore no hater has eternal life. Now look closely at verse 14. First, what does it mean to pass out of death into life? It means that believers we're dead in sin, and, and because of Christ, they are alive 
in Christ. They were corpses in the grave of sin and Christ resurrected them with himself to be alive in him. Ephesians 2, 4 and 7, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Passing from death into life does not happen because of our love of others. It happens because of God's love for us. And here's what happens when we truly love one another. John says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Our love for one another is confirmation. We could say it is assurance that we've been saved, that that we truly belong to Christ. When I was younger, I struggled more so with the assurance of salvation Still struggle with that, but I, I struggle with that and would ask sometimes questions like, what if I die and go to hell? I mean, what if that happens? Well, that question can haunt a person and that can really be unsettling. And, and it has been throughout my life. And so I've been confronted with my sin and sometimes just when you just don't get it right. And you're like, I wanna get it right, but I'm not getting it right. And then you ask questions like, am I even saved then? I mean, can I be saved and know Christ if I'm doing these types of things? Has my heart really been changed? And some of you probably live with that tension. I wanna be sensitive, but I wanna recognize this, that a bunch of us have come from Anabaptist backgrounds which may have, depending on your experience, but it may have left us with a certain moral performance anxiety as if we are righteous by our ability to follow Jesus' good example. Just follow Jesus' example. Follow his example. And you're like, I'm trying here. And, and that it puts you under this um, sense of moral performance anxiety. Maybe that's part of your story. So we, we live, and maybe you come from a different background that did the exact same thing. We live under the pressure to do, 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 to be like Jesus in order to be accepted by God. Instead of focusing on the gospel and being accepted by God in Christ and then doing because we're loved and because we want to love in return. So two very different understandings of scripture. So loving your brothers and sisters in Christ is not something that you do in order to be part of the family. It's something that God produces in you because he's already adopted you and you are part of the family. It's an assurance. Would the family say then that you're loving them? Would the family say that you're loving them? If so, be encouraged by that. Embrace the truth and then know that your spirit-induced love for the church is evidence that God has poured his beautiful love into you and you are secure. 
When we lay down our lives for each other, our faith and security in Christ are confirmed. Others receiving your love is assuring confirmation of you having received God's love in Christ. There's something that among the elders that I've, I've experienced and that is an affirmation. So one elder in particular I can think of has affirmed things that he sees in my life of how I'm loving others, which is helping me find the comfort of Christ in what he's producing in me. See, I, I think there's a danger of becoming entirely introspective, just gauging at yourself. Yeah, but what do your brothers and sisters think of your love? Would they say you're loving them? Because sometimes we assume we're loving, but they actually aren't feeling the love. Are we loving them? And what do they have to say with it? You are not alive, brothers and sisters, because you love. You know you are alive because you love. The Bible gives further proof, John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. What's, what's the key? How do we know who's, follow, who's a real follower of Christ? If you have love for one another. 1 John 2:10 Whoever loves his brother abides in the life. 1 John 3 abides in the light. 1 John 3:10 By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. There's only two. You're in one of the categories. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Don't love his brother? You're a child of Satan. That's what the scripture says. That's what Jesus taught. 1 John 4, 7, beloved, let us love one another for love is from, where does it come from? From God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You can't love till you've been born of God and you know God. And when you've been born of God and know God, you love the brothers. Now, again, I think introspection is important. I think we should examine our own hearts. I think the Bible calls us to do so. But this is also dangerous because our hearts can deceive us in various ways. And that's not helpful. We don't help ourselves a lot. So try this out. Ask your brothers and sisters how you're doing at loving them. Put yourself out there. Ask them that. Ask your spouse. Ask your kids. Ask the people that you're sitting in the pew with. How am I doing in loving you? What do they think? Because it matters what they think. Ask them how you can, this would be a great question, how can I love you better? How can I love you more? How can I really love you? Now, you may assume that you're loving your church family, but it should be of your great interest to you of whether your church family thinks that you're loving them well. If you are not loving your church family, then you are still dead in your sins. Oh, let us love one another as confirmation that we are part of the family. So then what is love? I haven't really defined it. And where does love come from? And how do you know that you love? The sacrificial love of Christ is the definition and source of our love. The sacrificial love of Christ. Verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. How do we know love? Love is found in the beautiful example of Jesus Christ, the beautiful sacrificial love of our Savior. He laid down his life for us. He didn't murder his brethren like Cain. 
He loved them by treating them far, far better than what they deserved. He loved them by fulfilling the law for them. John 10, 14 and 15, uh, and then 17 and 18. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We have a savior who lived the law to be the perfect mediator who went to the cross and displayed the most fantastic love that can be conceived by taking the full weight of our sin and God's wrath upon himself so that he could pay the ransom with himself for our freedom. He was innocent and without sin and yet God made him to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His righteousness is counted as ours, the Son of God knew the only way to accomplish the redemption of sinners was by his own vicarious atonement. Precious. His life for ours so that we may be exonerated from death and hell and penalty and torment and transferred from the family of Satan into the family of God. Unlike Cain, Jesus did not take life. He gave his life to give life. By this sacrifice, we know love. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, laid down his life for us. It's by the power of the gospel that we begin to reflect the radiance of God's love as a warm sunbeam shining into the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ is the light. Christ is the warmth. Christ is the love. We are in him. He is in us. And he shines his light and his warmth through us, his body. The template for our love is Jesus. And this does not conflict with saying the law defines love because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. We see in him what it's all about. We see in him what love is. His entire life was law-keeping or love of God and neighbor in perfection. Realize what John is saying here. Jesus willingly and lovingly gave his life And so we ought to to do what in response to that? We ought to lay down our lives for one another, for our brothers and sisters. Love is sacrificial action. Now maybe as you think this through, you would take a bullet for a fellow Christian. Maybe. You know, you hear these stories of guys being captured. I think there was a South Korean group or something, and the one pastor was like, no, me first. I'm dying first. They can take me. No, and then they start arguing, well, who's going to get executed first? So maybe you would take a bullet for another Christian, but on average, you know, around here, bullets aren't flying uh, a whole lot. Would you get involved when your brother's marriage is a mess? Would you forgive your sister when what she did against you was really, really, really painful. Would you forgive? Uh, Would you give up something that you really valued? I mean, something that was precious to you so that your brother would not be left in need? 
Would you invest your time, energy, money, your home, your food budget, which is now in the zillions, and more to engage the family of Christ? Will you do with less so that they can have? And John is brilliant. He, he first mentions the horrendous death of Jesus, and then he calls us to also give our lives for the brothers, and then he gives an example, and he says this, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Hey, jump in front of the bullet if you have the opportunity. Until then, see your brother's need and strive to meet that need. Strive to be there for them and to give what you can give. Hear this loud and clear. If a believer closes his heart against his brother, God's love does not abide in him, no matter what his confession says. Maybe the simplest test is whether your resources are being used right now to help your brother. We're given many different kinds of resources That's simple. Do do I love through generosity of money, time, energy, resources, whatever? So everything between meeting a little practical need and taking a bullet for your brother is included in loving your brother. Not anything less. Christ's love for us has no end and neither does our love for one another. In verse 11, John writes this, we should love one another. And the Greek word means a continuous action. We just continue to love one another, love one another, love one another. The love never stops. And if we think of 1 Corinthians 13, 8, this resonates. Love never ends. So when we hear the word love, our minds should go to Christ the paragon of love, the one who loved perfectly, the one who fulfilled the law of love. Love is the love of God poured into us then overflowing in love for our brothers and sisters. Dr. Leonard Kammer, a psychiatrist, writer of numerous books and a specialist for treating depression said this, quote, The human being is the only species that can't survive alone. The human being needs another human being, otherwise he's dead. A telephone call to a depressed person can save a life. An occasional word, a 10-minute visit, can be more effective than 24 hours of nursing care. You can buy nursing care, you can't buy love. End quote. We as a church can be theologically astute. We can have orthodox and biblical preaching. We can have catechism classes in abundance. We can support multiple missions. We can have great fellowship times. We can worship together regularly on the Lord's day. All of that and yet not have love for one another. It's possible. 1 Corinthians 13 is often used as as kind of the text at weddings when you go to weddings. But it's a striking and terrifying indictment against unloving people and churches. Read the first three verses. If you do not love, you are nothing. How is that for the opening to the wedding ceremony? We must be very, very careful with a sermon like this because it's possible to outwardly express what looks like love without actually having love in our hearts, making us like the Pharisees. 
We, we must have faith in Christ. We must trust in Christ who produces love in the heart. We could sell all that we have in order to give to one another and we could actually give our bodies to be burned in the place of one another and yet gain absolutely nothing. It all means absolutely nothing without faith in Christ, union with Christ, and a gospel motivation. Love is the fruit of God's spirit and grace acting through faith. We need that vital union with Christ or this love thing's not gonna work. It's easy to say I love you, but much harder to actually love. Talk is cheap. John said in verse 18, little children, and you have to understand that as a term of affection, that he's writing to the people with this deep affection, little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. In other words, live love. Don't just say love. And I am one to believe that saying I love you is an important thing. That's part of loving, I think. But the words are precious and meaningful only in the context of an actual loving relationship or else the words are cheap. Take away the relationship and the words are only sentiment. They're cliche, maybe even offensive deceit that wound and hurt. James, he gives this striking illustration in James 2, 15 and 16. And I think churchgoers can be very good at putting up a front at church, playing a part, looking righteous before men without having love actually in their hearts. And James says this, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good is that? And I think the answer, the implied answer is, it's no good at all. That's not any good. The need was ignored. You didn't love. Your words were correct. They sounded great. Be warm and well-fed. But then you ignored the actual need and sent them away. Not love. That's not loving. And so the application is simple. Let's get back to focusing on the basics here. Maybe 2023, basics, what what is this all about? As we commune with Christ by faith, let us love one another, right? That's the message, let us love one another. Years ago, Jeremiah had this little plastic four-wheeler, and when you'd push one of the buttons, it would say, let's get going, Let's get going. Let's get going. You know, kids, you can, don't get them the gifts with batteries. Let's get going. Let's get going. So that's what it said. So when it comes to you and me through tangible and practical compassion and mercy and support and encouragement and rebuke, which is loving, and forgiveness and sharing and time together and energy and food and clothing, when it comes to these things, well, church, let's get going. Let's get going. Now, children are a blessing from the Lord. Um, Jeremiah, Maria, Peter, Andrew, huge blessing to Christina and I. Uh, They are the most important people uh, in the world to us. And we are certainly blessed. And it is our privilege and responsibility to love them. That's what we're supposed to do as parents. So Christina and I frequently, frequently tell our kids 
that we love them almost every day. And sometimes I'll joke, you know, you know, son, I've, I've never actually told you this before, but I do love you. And then they're like, yeah, dad, you told, you, you, you told us that before. Now, how do they know that I do? How would they know that? Well, along with Christina, I feed them, I clothe them, I shelter them, encourage them, teach them, lead them in family worship, catechize them, take them to church to receive God's ordinary means of grace for the well-being of their soul. I play with them, I laugh with them, I support them, I give them affection and more. It's all imperfect, folks. I make a royal mess of it, okay? But it all displays love to my children. Love is action. I'm sacrificing. Do you realize the places that Christina and I could go if we didn't have the spot? Sponges, just taking the money. I'm kidding. I love the sponges. Love you guys. But man, Europe is great too. So someday, we'll get, we'll get there. We'll go together, Christine and I. But we love them. We want to sacrifice. We want to give up because they are the most important things to us. And so we strive to give them a peace at home and give them a safe place and uh, a place where they can be themselves, a place of forgiveness, a place of love, and, and to grow up. And, and why? Because we love them. We, we really want to give them the best. And as imperfect as Christine and I are, I used to ask uh, Jeremiah during times of discipline, uh, why do I discipline you? And when he was little, he knew the answer. He said, because you love me. He even knew what discipline, the purpose of discipline and I feel like I got to get back to that just as we're helping our kids through sin and, and as they mature and grow up, you know, why are there these consequences? Because we love you and we want the best for you. So, so all of this in action form, imperfect as it may be, communicates that the words have meaning. I love you. I want to give you the best. Now, they're my kids does love compel everything I do for you as a pastor? Would I give my life for you? You know, there, there, I have many, many pastoral weaknesses, talk, talking about pastoral weaknesses this morning, okay? And so, will I keep working? Will, will I love you when, when the church can be sometimes critical, uh, will I love and keep going and say, not me, you. I'll just give for you. I'll give my life for you. D does love compel our elders to shepherd you through the great high mountains and the valleys when things are low? Do we come alongside of you where you know you are loved? And I know we'll tell you that. I hope we've told you. If not, we love you. But we'll tell you that in person, but do we back it up with how we shepherd? Men, let's shepherd out of love. And does love compel you to give yourself entirely to your church, even when it requires your sacrifice, even when you're like, man, I just don't feel like doing this? Is that when the love of Christ kicks in and you give of yourself to the church? That's a command. That's what we're supposed to do. That's the Christian life. I mean, my love is thoroughly incomplete. It is imperfect. It is weak. I am not the paragon of virtue. I will fail you over and over. In fact, when I first came to the church, I was interviewing, and I said, I have problems loving people. And I'm like, whoa, do we want this guy to come? I mean, he's a guy, do we want a pastor that does I was being honest, and you've experienced it, so I am sorry. I want to love you all more. Do you want to love one another more? 
Do you know what the church is? Do you know what God has called you to? Love one another as Christ loved you? Do you know what a call, uh, what, a, what a tall order that is? What, what beautiful things come out of that when we follow Christ? And, and all that we're left at this point is to say, we need Christ. We need Christ to do this. You won't do this. You will serve yourself, and so will I. We need to depend on Christ, who is the one who loves perfectly. He will help us love. He is the gift to us. He'll grow our love for one another. And here's where I want to just bring in, in conclusion, that God provides us wonderful means of grace, the word and sacraments, even prayer, that through these divine means, these spirit-empowered means, God actually strengthens our faith in Christ. And as our faith strengthens in Christ, guess what happens? Our love intensifies. If our faith is like, eh, not believing a whole lot, not really trusting, not really depending, it's just really we, our love will reflect that. The closer we get to Christ, the more we trust in him, the more we depend on him, the more we go to him in full dependence, the more he helps us to truly love. I, I do believe that. Our love intensifies as our faith deepens in the in the person and work of Christ. None of us will love very much if we are not feasting regularly on God's means of grace, on the word and sacraments. And if we are not praying diligently for God's grace and spirit and to the power of love, we will run into a deficiency. We have to feast and eat and eat. And then through that, he provides us the strength to do what is unbelievably hard. We'll have no energy without the word and sacraments ministry, none. You just get flattened. You won't have it in you. But if we feast on God's means of grace, and I mean really feast, really receive it. I want this. I want to taste. I want to taste and see that the Lord is good. Give me the word. Give me the law. Give me the gospel. Give me the word of Christ. Give me the sacraments. Help me to feast just to go deep. I want Jesus. Then we will find as our faith deepens, our love is totally enriched, and this will be an amazing place to be. I think it's an amazing place to be, but it will be an even more amazing place to be. So I mean feast. If we ask for his grace, if we ask for his spirit to help us love, our Lord, I promise you, will come through. If we're asking with sincerity, he's gonna come through and he's gonna strengthen us to love. It's absolutely inevitable. So the exhortation for you this morning is quite simple. Love one another. And that's it. Love one another. That's what living the Christian life is about. That's what true thankfulness for receiving God's grace in Christ looks like practically. Love one another because God in Christ has loved you lavishly.